0: For
1: 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Emily Jane Fox, still on maternity leave, paid leave, with her new baby, who we heard from last episode. We heard her squeak. And that was beautiful. Uh, And now we're back this week, really, to talk about the future of the world that uh, Emily Jane Fox's child is, is inheriting. Climate change. And I was trying to think, who could we talk to about that? We could bring scientists on, but scientists often, they just get so wonky and you can't relate it to your own life. And the big problem with climate change is... Trying to relate this gigantic global galactic concept to your own life, walking out of your door every morning, and so here we have today Nathaniel Rich, journalist, author of a book, amazing book, "Losing Earth," a recent history. Welcome.
0: Great to speak with you, Joe. Happy to be happy to be with you.
1: Yeah, I I read your art, the article from which the book originally came, the 2018 article "Losing Earth." the decade we almost stopped climate change, which was about the history of us knowing about it many, many decades, I mean, I'm reading your book, I'm learning that people started talking about the possibility of carbon uh, affecting climate in the 19th century, which is just insane, you know. Um, And then all the ways in which some really noble people attempted uh, to bring it all to our attention. you know, didn't make it over the top. It turns out it's a political PR thing and a kind of existential question for uh, that people decide, hey, do I want to make money in the short term and live my life in the short term or actually think about taking responsibility? So we're going to talk all about that in a minute. But the reason we're here is also because I've just been looking out my window and seeing a red sun this week as, you know, smoke clouds came over, Um, wildfires all over the place, the weather. Where I live in the Hudson Valley has been remarkably bizarre, and you live in New Orleans, a place sort of famously exposed
0: yeah on the on the cutting edge of uh, the leading edge of climate catastrophe for for decades, really I mean it's whole history, I guess you could say but but certainly uh in the recent in recent years yeah you can't I don't think you can help. But have a, a heightened heightened sense, a personal sense of 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 you know the peril of climate change um if you live in in new orleans it's it's part of the daily reality. Um, and I think you know new orleans in in a lot of ways gets is thought of you know in the popular imagination as being the city of the past, rooted in the past, haunted by the past and and it and it is, but it's also uh, I think in this regard a city of the future, and that you know anyone who lives in New Orleans. Um, is on intimate terms with climate catastrophe and and with the understanding that every you know every every hurricane season could be our last uh it's a very different type of mindset um
1: than you would have in most most american cities certainly right and just to you could fact check me on this is new Orleans is like below sea level right it's sort of at a, a
0: that's a that's a <laughs> That's a politically complicated statement. Um, <laughs> the, the, and historically complicated. Some of it is below sea level, some of it is not. Um and the neighborhoods that are, you know, the, the highest neighborhoods tend to be the wealthiest ones and the um the, the oldest neighborhoods, the ones by particularly by the by the river, um and the, yes, the the, the the differentials between one—although, you know, completely to the naked eye, you would never even notice, but the difference between, you know, a, a foot or two above sea level and nine feet below basically dictates the, the socioeconomic and racial makeup of, of every neighborhood.
1: What a metaphor, too, for, you know, what we might be seeing globally happen, you know, as the resources— come under pressure from climate change. I'm gonna just read something that's from your book because um, uh, you talk about, I'm just kind of coming in the middle of it here in your intro, starvation, drought, the inundation of the coasts and the smothering expansion of deserts will force hundreds of millions of people to run for their lives. The mass migrations will stagger delicate regional truces, hastening battles over natural resources, acts of terrorism and declarations of war, Beyond a certain point, the two great existential threats to our civilization, global warming and nuclear weapons, will loose their chains and join to rebel against their creators. Now, this is sort of a scenario under which, you know, the temperatures have risen and we're, you know, can no longer escape the dramatic fallout of it.
0: Well, I, I think I think actually the danger is, is uh, closer than that. I mean, I think the when – when people think of, of, you know, the future of, of advanced – Global warming, yeah, you think of like a desert wasteland, say, um, but actually, the real the real uh, immediate danger is from the geopolitical instability that's caused by even very small shifts in climate. Yeah. And you know, there's there's a whole sort of sub uh, discipline of, of you know uh, scholarship about whether you know the calamity in Syria is, is essentially a climate caused event. Um, you have massive populations of people all over the world, less so in in North America, but in parts of Asia particularly, of tens of millions of people in poor regions who are deeply threatened by climate change and sea level rise in ways that will will force them to migrate in the next, you know, we're not talking 50 years, the next 10, 20 years, depending on weather events and, and so on. And they have no, you know. It's not like if you're on, in Southern Louisiana and you just you have to migrate to Texas. It's, you know, you have to travel from Bangladesh into India or into parts of China, and you know, there's there's intense regional tensions in these places, and these are nuclear powers, and so the 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 most immediate threat, in in some ways, is at least at the lo- at the global level, is an outbreak of a of a war, um, and and particularly in, in places where there's already huge instability and and they're armed to the teeth. That So, so you know, I think when we bef- – well before it gets to the state of, um, you know, the road, uh, we're, we're really yeah. talking about massive global political unrest and, and warfare.
1: Yeah, and we've already – we've seen for decades and years just the effect of just, you know, refugees coming for economic reasons or even, you know, not to – talk of like, you know, being forced out by some natural disaster. Um, We've seen it and it's horrible. And uh, yeah, and if the caravan from if
0: the caravan, this feared caravan from South America is not, you know, 100 people or 1000 people, but 10, 25 million people, then you get a little bit more of a sense of what kind of instability that could wreak. Yeah.
1: And your book sort of shows and makes clear and we've seen it in recent times in the news that our political system is so completely out of whack and ridiculous that its response to these things is cartoonish, you know, and dunderheaded in the extreme. And we can't even talk about it, right? I mean, it's that's why we're sort of stuck in this in this crisis. So I, I wasn't going to jump right into this, but uh, I, I read recently, and I, I can't remember it, and I can't cite it right in this moment. But you may recall it or be familiar with this, but. Some people uh, are of the mind that, you know, given that there's no way out through politics, that radicalism is called for that, you know, people need to make radical actions to get people's attention, because this is really a PR thing on some level. It's like you got to get people to wake up to it. Now, they are. They're seeing their these forest fires. I mean, out West. And but we've been seeing them, you know, for a while. And they are correct. I mean, they're symptomatic at least, yeah. or made more, um, you know, extreme by by climate change. What can you tell us about that philosophy? And are there people out there we can pay attention to who are who talk about this? Are there groups that who's sort of advocating for that?
0: Yeah, it's striking. I mean, that's in some ways a, a, a question that that led me to write "Losing Earth" was. What was the political landscape like before there was this complete paralysis? That you know the causes of which, are, well, you know, we're well familiar with the oil and gas industry's uh, multi-decadal disinformation campaign, um, the radicalization of the Republican Party on this issue to the point where the basic, you know, fundamental science uh, of climate change uh, and really atmospheric chemistry is questioned. Um, but but you know, in the period I, I wrote about in the nineteen eighties, uh, there wasn't there wasn't much politicization on the issue of climate change. You know, the the right under Reagan was hostile to anything, uh, you know, any kind of regulation, any any environmental regulation. But climate change itself had not been become part of the environmentalists, uh, you know, campaign. There was really one environmental activist, uh, Rafe Pomerantz, who's the, the main figure in my book, during the most of the 80s, who was even paying attention to the issue. And and there were prominent Republicans as well as prominent Democrats who were pushing for a major response and, and that they failed during this period when all of the conditions that would seem to be necessary for some kind of major agreement had, you know, had been met. Um, There's consensus on the science. There was political agreement. There was major national attention by the end of the decade still resulted in, in failure. And I, I think some of the frustration that you see now that you're alluding to um, and these calls for for radicalism, um, and even sort of ecological, um, you know, environmental ter- terrorism of a kind, that you know comes out of a frustration with a political process that you know now the now it seems we're in a place where it, it seems you know so remote that that we could pass some kind of major legislation on the scale necessary um, to address the problem, and and yet even and even when. You know, we could have when, when those kinds of uh, policies were being discussed and, and had bipartisan support.ed That we still failed then, so you understand the the, the anger um, and the the rage uh, and about the desperation. it, and the desperation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, people who have been fighting this fight for decades are extre- for the most part, are extremely bitter, you know, disillusioned, yeah. um, depressed. Frankly, a lot of people I spoke to for Losing Earth, who were fighting this fight in the eighties. Um, you know completely bitter and cynical about it and yet you know there are actually in the last couple of years there has been an enormous uh shift in the in the public debate over the sub, over the issue um on the left where climate change has always been supported but has never been much of a priority it's it's become you know if you look at these these public opinion polls it's it's become one or two or three um depending on the poll uh, in terms of of major priority, and even on the right, you have growing not not so much in the national party, um, although there are some fissures there. But you do have growing interest and concern um, as well. And and it's it's more true also the, f- the further you go from the power centers, and and when you go to places like uh, Florida or Southern Louisiana, you know red areas um, where they're living with with the horrors of, of, uh, global warming today, you know, they're not denialists there. And so there has been some movement and, you know, the, I guess the the question, the, you know, the eternal question is, you know, how much policy can you pass, how quickly and, um, and, and can radical politics get you any closer to that, that goal? I'm not sure that they can, um, you know, I think it would be nice if, if yeah, if, if all it took was um, some radical act that would then, gen, you know, motivate the public will. But I, I feel like you're just as likely politically to cause the you know the opposite effect. And so um, I think we're sort of stuck where we, in some ways, you know, where we've always been, which is how do you convince a vocal uh, majority of of the public to force politicians into into action. And, you know, we've, there have been tremendous gains, but it's also, we're, we're a long ways from, you know, the level that we, we require. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring
1: its impact on society at large.
0: Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.
1: Yeah, I was just noticing that this week, not that Mitt Romney has any uh, real influence anymore in his own party, but he's out there saying, you know, it would be shameful for the children of the future to look back on this moment and if we didn't act and do something but all the reasonable people in his party uh, are being are outcasts at this stage yeah so, um. I mean you had
0: you had you had the Romneys you know this sort of Republican part of the Republican camp in the in the 80s there were there were Republican senators like you know I think of David Durenberger, especially there are people in the house like Claudine Schneider from from Rhode Island who were saying the same things and using the same language talking about um, responsibility and And also, frankly, you know, fundamental conservative values. You know, there is what's been lost in the last decades is that there there actually is a uh, coherent and I think effective uh, conservative argument for um, climate policy and for environmental protection. And there were people in the early, you know, in the early 80s on the right who are articulating those ideas. But that that part of the Republican Party, of course, is with the exception of Romney and a few, maybe a few handful of other others, um, they're not in the
1: party anymore. Well, there's, it's interesting because what it boils down to, as you put it in the book, it's sort of negotiating how much responsibility, how much we're willing to sacrifice in the present to, to protect the future. And there's this, there's this group you describe as the fatalists in the late seventies who uh, were coming out of, I think, you know, scientific and policy world. And I'll just read this little bit here. She said, um, was the prospect of, say, a global food shortage one century hence enough to motivate a person to commute to work by public bus? Was it enough to convince a family of four to forgo a dryer for a clothing rack? And what degree of certainty was required if so? 30 percent? 98 percent? The question had to be asked not only of individuals, but also of nations and corporations. How much value did we assign to the future? Right. And that was the late 70s. And apparently they didn't assign too much. So and, and of course, there was a lot of headwinds in, in the form of Exxon and other oil companies and the politicians who benefited from their largesse. Right. So, um, yeah. The, but now here we. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and I should say that the cost benefit analysis, of course, is very different in 2021 and then it was in 1978, um, yep. in part because we're that much Further along the timeline, the climate change timeline, but also because a lot of the solutions and the remedies are are much cheaper, basically, than they would have been in 1978, and require. And and in fact, there's a, there's I think a growing consensus in economic circles that in fact it's the cost benefit is now on the fave is is now on the side of of massive intervention now, in economic intervention, and, and trying to bring about this. Transition to renewable energy. That every every day that we delay will actually be is more costly, um, not only in the long run but even in, in the relatively uh, short term. But you know, I think that this question that you hit on is really an interesting one. Of, of you use the word marketing, and it's it's almost sort of a crass term, but 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 that frankly has been a keystone of, of these conversations from the beginning. You know, to to this day, environmental activists uh, activists fight about whether, you know, what's the best way to get people to pay attention or to motivate people to act? Is it, you know, usually the conversations along the lines of, you know, should we cause them to feel hopeful about progress or should we, should we terrify them? And, yeah. and there's a lot of debate about those too. And, 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 and how, you know, or you have to present the terror with a little spoonful of sugar at the end, you know, and, and it feels like a very infantile, uh, conversation, frankly, but, but that's, that's been there from the beginning, you know, in the late seventies, there were, there were social scientists who were already asking that question, you know, how do we motivate people to act? How do we motivate politicians to act? What do we tell them? Um, and, and the, the fascinating thing about the current moment is that there has been a shift in the messaging, a really profound shift in the messaging. Um, and it's not necessarily been because some polling person, uh came up frank labs came up with some new way to talk about it um it's it's because i think a, a, an awareness or uh understanding by a younger generation of of people activists and politicians that the old way of speaking about this issue uh was getting them nowhere and essentially the old way was to make an appeal to reason to logic and say you know we have the science we know what's happening we know it's we, what to do, um, and we know that it's foolish not to act now. We need, you know, the longer we wait, the the more foolish it is. And, you know, you, you see that from James Hansen and Rafe Palmer and write so, about in the, you know, starting in the early '80s. You see it certainly from Al Gore. An inconvenient truth is essentially that argument made in a louder voice or a higher pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, here's even more data. Here's even it's even more urgent. Um, and that argument has really carried the day on uh, in activists. World until the last couple of years, and this youth-led activist movement has made a very different argument, which has essentially been to say, "Yes, of course it's logical to act, but but what we're talking about is not just what's uh, the reasonable thing to do, but what's the morally right thing to do. What we're you know we're would any kind of you know if you be- if you believe in any kind of the, of the fundamental values of our society, you are obliged to do everything you can to." uh transition to to you know a, a world without fossil fuels making it
1: making it about the individual um decisions too i mean that uh, the morality of your daily life I, and i want to bring this conversation like down to the nitty gritty here because this this is a question that i do live with on a weekly basis in a way my wife is like uh, much more advanced in her thinking and her moral vision about how we're living just like in my house right we talk about the dryer right i, I last summer she was like okay we we got to stop using this dryer and she actually went out and, and built you know the the uh the clothing line in the yard and we started using it my teenage daughter was none too happy let me tell you that <laughs> but um but you know there's all these challenges to it you're suddenly there and you're like i got to hang all these up what a pain in the ass but you know so you were certain to start to realize the actual loss of convenience and then you start to measure that against This moral thing that you're trying to achieve, which you cannot see the end result of. You can only get a moral feeling from it, right? And this goes to everything we're doing from your electric cars to your, you know, how you're heating your house, right? Yeah. What food you buy. Yeah. What food you buy. Well, that's a big one. You know, we want to buy from these local farms. I happen, I'm lucky enough to live around, you know, places that produce food and I'm in a food producing area. So we try, you know, but it's expensive. Also, and it's basically a, uh, you know, privilege to be able to do it and not a moral mandate in, except in the sense that we can afford it, right? I mean, it is a moral mandate, but we can—it's costly, right? And it's sort of on the individual level. I'm constantly faced with what the big level has to face, you know. the right. the. So, what you know, how do you, as a guy who's been writing about this, how do you— how do you deal with it how do you cope with that question
0: yeah i mean i think it's worth also saying that it's been it, it's an explicit strategy um of, of the oil and gas industry over the years to make it about personal responsibility you know we each have to do our part and and to encourage a sense of personal guilt to displace it from the guilt of fossil from fuel them. companies yeah, you yeah, know yeah. ravenous mo- uh, corporate monsters um, yes. and on the on the other hand um yes, this is an incremental, uh, problem. Um, and, and every, you know, every, everything you do in society, uh, modern society, um, has some kind of energy consumption, uh, you know, coefficient. And, and so, um, to the extent that you can reduce your footprint and that, that does improve, you know, uh, on the, on the very margins of the, of the problem, it does make some impact. Um, even if it's infinitesimal, and so there is some moral, there is some moral quality to that kind of conversation. I lost the dryer wars with my wife after our baby. After we did um, uh, hand wash diaper, you know, um, <laughs> we we didn't do yeah. disposable diapers for all. I think that was the final blow to my um, the dryer yeah. line. But you know, and it's interesting. Like when I when Losing Earth came out in France, and I, I I I went to to Paris and did some events there, and I was stunned by the extent to which the conversation about climate change there was in, almost entirely about personal responsibility. And it was about, mm-hmm. you know, w- people need to stop, you know, get rid of their cars, they need to walk to work, et cetera, which is something you really don't hear much here. Even even among in the sort of the most lefty corners of the environmental movement, you know, people, maybe they don't use dryers, but they're not calling for like total abolition of, of um, highways. But, you know, I think we know... Uh, Statistically, scientifically, that personal responsibility is not going to get us anywhere close to where we need to go. On the other hand, I feel like there does need to be some ethic of, you know, climate awareness in the same way that, you know, any anyone who's brought up well in society knows they're not supposed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the street or to throw their garbage out their window. There has to be a similar ethic about carbon consumption more generally. And I think until that ethic is, is more closer to a universal ethic... We probably won't have enough people who are pushing politicians to to basically follow the same um ethic but but yeah in terms of like what's the actual impact in the bigger picture of things I, I i sort of i guess i'm I come down in the middle, which is I do everything i can i'm I'm hyper aware of my carbon usage um but I haven't sworn off car travel either, although I mostly do an electric car, I guess but you know I, I try to make decisions as much as possible to reflect um a sort of moral moral sense of the issue but i i also you know that just like any other moral issue you know i also do think you know i sometimes will buy from from products from companies that i abhor but it's convenient you know so it's I think what's, interesting to, what's most interesting to me about this issue is, is yeah, how, how, does, how do each of us navigate it? How do we, where do you draw the line? And I think it's, yeah. it's something that, that we're all, anyone with awareness of their problem is struggling with. And, and essentially, it's, it, it comes down to the person and how you know, committed they want to be and how they see, you know, constructed their own moral vision of them, themselves.
1: You know, you wrote a book, so you about it. So you did. Uh, you've taken care of a lot of your moral responsibility by ringing the alarm bell. So uh, you know, you're way <laughs> out ahead of me. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to recycle my over own here. sense of guilt, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think about you know, I graduated from college in the early '90s to date myself, and I was in Maine, and my wife went to school in Vermont, and those states were sort of like out on the leading edge of like talking about recycling and, you know, the earth and Earth Day and and kind of bringing those. And I remember it at the time. And it was a new thing. And uh, not many people were even recycling at the time. And, uh, you know, over the course of 30 years, now you've got people doing that. And it's hard to even know whether that in itself is meaningful, but it's something. Right. Um, But the question becomes, like, is it a bottom up thing or are we going to go to the top and try to make them change? you know so but that is where you get stuck in these political morasses that we've been talking about right and so you know whatever it, it, the question becomes will the arc of the temperature rise now we've we've learned that what's a, a degree 1 degree globally right and we're desperate to avoid 2 and you know a million times more desperate to avoid 3 and 4 degrees right i mean these are really apocalyptic scenarios can the arc of our politics, which tends to wax and wane, you know, uh, from one left and right, right? Do we have time for the slowness of that process to meet this demand? And uh, we don't know that, you know, but when you're—let me just ask you this, because your book is so, uh, you know, at times very apocalyptic and and uh, demoralizing to read, honestly. You know, where do you look for, like, just a spark of hope in all of this? I mean, uh, do you see, like, light— out there and where do you look for it?
0: Yeah, I mean I guess I reject I and part of me rejects the whole the the hope pessimism dialectic generally because I feel like it's right, it's reduced good. the whole issue into a kind of like a superhero movie, you know, where right. it's like either we're gonna save the world uh and keep it under one and a half degree, you know, warming, or the dark side will win and we'll be living in in a you know hellscape. And I, you know, I, I, my, I guess my feeling is, you know, of course we, we, we have to do everything we can to keep it. You know, And it's not just between two degrees and three degrees. It's the difference between two degrees and 2.1 degrees is exactly gargantuan, you know, you know and 2.1 right. to 2.2. So it's, it, there's a wide range of outcomes and, uh, still available to us, even though we've, we've lost the chance basically of keeping it at one and a half. Um, but, but there's still, you know, everything we do going forward still will have a tremendous influence on the future of, of the planet and its, its habitability for, for human civilization. Um, and so I guess my feeling is that, that, you know, I hope, I hope for the best. I, I sort of fear for the worst. I, I feel like the lesson that I've learned from not just how our politics has handled or mishandled this, this issue, but really, you know, for past civilizations have handled existential threats. Um, you know, I can only conclude that we'll continue to muddle through it, that, that, you know, we might not get to the worst scenarios, but we, we, are, you know, the chances of achieving the best scenarios are also pretty dim. Society will be reorganized in, in dramatic ways. It already is being reorganized in, in dramatic ways. And, and the people who, um, you know, the suffering will be distributed unfairly as it always is. Um, mm-hmm. And so, There's a a sense of just a perpetual battle, really, to to try to avoid the worst. And it's not such a great rallying cry. It's not what the activists will say. Like, you know, they won't say, like, let's try to avoid the worst. Hooray. Like, let's avoid the the worst catastrophe. Well, you know, one
1: thing that, uh, you know, we talk about what's happening in the news now. Um, Talk about marketing. I mean, is there any it comes to a point where nobody can avoid what we're seeing in the news and these kind of horrific natural disasters on some level, one would think that sort of repeated viewings of this stuff on 24 seven cable and on the internet would, uh, alert people to like, Oh yeah, maybe I was wrong to think this was not real. This looks pretty real. You know, I mean, yeah. this looks bad.
0: That, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that's certainly part of the, the, this marketing question. I mean, they're, the the event that did more to generate awareness and concern about the the issue, uh, in in really the history of of the problem, was in 1988 when James Hansen, climate scientist at NASA, testified before Congress and said. Um, you know, climate change is here. Global warming is here now. It's not just a theory. It's it. We can see evidence of it, statistical evidence in the global temperature records. And and the reason that the, one of the main reasons that had such a huge impact was that it was said in the middle of what was then um, the hottest summer in, in recorded history. Um, you know, we've had about 30 summers hotter <laughs> since. But at the time, it was that there was you know, national daily news coverage of these horrific wildfires. You know, two million acres in Alaska burned down. There were a dozen major fires across the West. Yellowstone National Park lost a million acres. Um, you know, we talked about the sun uh, being blotted out by smoke, and that was true. Then there was you know smoke smoke from Yellowstone was was you know clouding Chicago and so on. and so. It it did have an effect, and I think these these the constant uh, reminders of climate. Uh, chaos has some effect, but I also feel like if we're if we're hoping that this um, you know news coverage of these disasters will do the trick uh, alone, I think we're being delusional. Because as you said, it's it's really every summer now. There's 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 mm-hmm. this just um, incredible um, number of, of horrific events, and and it's not enough. I don't think it's quite. It doesn't get you there. I don't think the scare tactics get you there. I mean, it might, if if you live in the West and you're a wildfire engulfs your house, um, sure. But for the rest of the population, I think you need more than just um, fear as a tactic. I think you need to actually create a sense of, um, of a moral failing of, of some sense that, you know, this is, this is wrong on a, on a deep, <laughs> a deeply unsettling level. And that the, the government has to be motivated um, in a massive way to, to respond. And, and it, it's a kind of awareness that you see coming, you know, like in the civil rights era. You know, there had been lynchings over the years that people got really upset about. And maybe that brought more people to the cause, these high profile events. But it took a real movement and a, and a moral movement um, to get a wider national response to act, and I and I think that's what we need, it's, and I think it's starting to build now over the last few years. There's been a there's been a real shift as we discussed, but we're not at the fin- certainly not close to the finish line either.
1: Yeah, well, it has been heartening just in the last twenty years that I've noticed that millennials and younger there's just a much wider and more comprehensive understanding of climate change. It's almost baked into their kind of upbringing and their worldview, and a lot more activism has come out of the younger generations and as they get their hands on the levers of power you know that could dramatically alter things as well it's
0: personal um, yeah it's not it's not yeah. speculative it's yeah it's like their future and it's or in their lives to now you know it's it's the the mm-hmm. question i got every every event i've done for losing earth somebody has said in the in the q a is uh usually a young person will say i'm I you know I'm afraid to have children should I is it ethical to have children sometimes mm-hmm. it's a, a would be grandparent saying my child I'm upset because my children adult children don't want to have children because of climate change and I feel like that is is kind of the you know the tip the the the, the tip I don't want to say you know tip of the iceberg uh this kind yeah. of you know the the knife's the, the spear's tip of of the ways in which the this public uh, crisis starts to enter one's personal life, and the way the way you think about your own life, major life decisions about you know where you live, what kind of you know family you want to have, whether you want to have children, uh, what you want to do with your life, and I think for anyone who's who's a young person today, um, you can't uh, avoid uh, this yeah. entering into your into your life in a really intimate way, and so undoubtedly that that shifts the politics.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a minute about your new book that just came out this year's uh, Second Nature, which is sort of a compendium of pieces about really fascinating, even eccentric uh, figures with unusual relationships to nature and who are either manipulating it or having a, an interesting response to it. And let me just say, um, been reading. I haven't read every single word of both books yet because I, I had to do it in a short amount of time. But but I really love your writing. You're a great writer. And um, it's very much in the spirit of like John McPhee. I think about, you know, his pieces about, uh, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and, the, the you know, how they control the land. And it sort of uh, and it has that kind of very involving, wonderfully journalistic, uh, well-reported um, quality to it. So if you see it in the bookstore, you should read it. Uh, buy it <laughs> and read it. But um tell me a little bit about how this the germinated. Like what was the sort of you must have been following a lot of different stories, but how how did it come about and what's the sort of thesis of the book in your mind?
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean I, I think that I mean John McPhee certainly is is you know control of nature specifically is is yeah. the the kind of Bible of this kind of writing. And and yeah. you know I, I think they're they're all essays on stories on environmental themes, but they're, I didn't start writing when I started writing them. I didn't identify them as such. I I felt like I was being drawn to stories about eccentrics, obsessives, um, who were, uh, finding themselves in very sort of eerie, uncanny, uh, circumstances. and, and, and facing problems that were, um, I found unsettling in some ways. And, and so, you know, there's a story about, um, Robert Ballad who's a, a lawyer, corporate lawyer who discovered sort of accidentally that, uh, the, the greatest criminal conspiracy, uh, in, in modern American corporate history, which is that DuPont has been poisoning all of us for, for, for decades, uh, knowing that it was doing so and not, uh, telling anybody about it or, you know, stories of starfish along the Pacific coast, uh, committing suicide in these horrific ways, tearing themselves apart or, um, story about a a young chef who, who decides to get into the business of culturing meat, um, creating meat from, you know, uh, cells so as to avoid, um, killing any animals, but essentially mass producing meat in laboratories in San Francisco. And, and so they're all stories about essentially the eeriness of the world today. And it was only later that I I realized that these are really all about stories about ways in which we've um, completely reconfigured the natural world or what we used to call the natural world um, to our own specifications, Um, you know, somewhat recklessly, sometimes recklessly, sometimes uh, maliciously, uh, and, and how we're only now really uh, awakening to this reality that that there's nothing natural anymore on the planet by any conventional definition of the term, and and then you know I also followed stories of people who who once they had this awareness have have tried to use advanced technologies to try to recreate something that we've lost, what we've lost, if not reproduce it exactly or restore some some natural you know landscape or condition. Exactly. Then, then do some kind of major intervention that at least restores some of the qualities that we associate with nature that we've lost. And um, you know, so there are stories about bringing back extinct species, about reconfiguring the Louisiana coast, um, and you know, story about a a, a mad artist who created a genetically engineered glow-in-the-dark rabbit. and so there there's stories about trying to navigate the eeriness of, of this moment which is which is also in some ways the theme of of losing earth and and so it's there's stories about control of nature j- just like uh, John McPhee's story about the atrophallia
1: well I'm gonna read just a, a line here that you just referenced it a minute ago but um... You talk about what we still, in a uh, flourish of misplaced nostalgia, called the "quote natural world" is gone, if it ever existed. Almost no rock, leaf, or cubic foot of air on Earth has escaped our clumsy signature, and it's it's interesting because we do live. You know, we have, or I have, uh, people have, um, you know, been sort of stuck in a vision of our relationship to earth that comes from like the Bible, basically, you know what I mean? As this sort of static thing, that's not going anywhere. And we're just sort of in it, you know, which is, and really what we now realize to our horror and, uh, great calamity here is that, uh, we are totally responsible for shepherding it into the future. And it's with that. And our connection to it has to be calibrated in, in, in a new way. And so my question for you is, um, for those who, uh, I, I want to go on vacation and read some books that make me smarter, and I'm going to read yours. But who out there in terms of, you know, philosophers, in terms of science philosophers, in terms of visionaries, has outlined what is the right balance for us to shepherd the earth into the future? What Who who can we look to who can describe to us what it would look like if we were doing it right?
0: Yeah, I. you know, that's a good question. I mean, I don't I, the writers that I think write most beautifully about these themes are not really didact are not didactic or prescriptive. Even um, they just see the world more clearly, I think, than, than others, are yeah. and, and write about it with more sensitivity. And so, uh, and I, I feel like the value, you know, what I what I look for in in, in books on on these on these themes. Um, is, is not so much, um, yeah, pre- prescriptions as, as, a, as a deeper reckoning with, with, because, yeah. you know, the ear, I feel like the eeriness of this moment, um, you know, the eeriness of, of eating a lab grown, uh, hamburger or seeing a glow in the dark, you know, bunny rabbit, uh, caper across yeah. the field. It, it's, it, the eeriness comes from not so much the, the newness of the technology as from, our failure to this point to really grapple with it in any kind of meaningful way to try to understand it, to think about our place in it. Um, and, and, and I, so the writers I turn to are ones who are, you know, are, are trying to think through these issues. So I think of Terry Tempest Williams is a beautiful, uh, writer from Utah, from an, a gas fan, one well, gas family who writes, very imaginatively and inventively about, um, the natural world, you know, particularly about the West, but, but really about, you know, she's, she's really far ranging and, and, and uses essays and poems and, um, you know, correspondence and, and is is a fascinating, um, original voice on these issues. Um, Amitav Ghosh, uh, the novelist has written beautifully both in fiction and in, in essays, um, about this, this moment, that we're in and also what it means for our literature, Um, not just literature written specifically about, you know, climate change, but but really literature of our era, which is in this climate, uh, you know, deranged era. And, and so he's somebody I, I look to who else do I think of? I think of um, yeah. McPhee is another one. I mean, you mentioned, although he's, you know, he, he started writing about some of these themes earlier, than others. Uh, but he writes about the theme, the same themes in really beautiful, uh, original ways. There's, there's a novel, a young novelist named Alexandra Kleeman. Um, her new novel is coming out. Um, I read it early and it's, it's one of the first novels that I think you can call it a climate novel without it being, purely dystopian or even about climate change directly, I, I, one of my frustrations, you know, it's funny and bizarre, and it's set in a, in a kind of near future in California where there's no public water basically available. The public, no one drinks public water and everyone buys from this evil water corporation that makes a product called water that's spelled W-A-T-R um, that might be laced with all kinds of um, toxins and, and sort of unclear and you know, one one frustration I've had with with the literature about this subject, and part of what drove me to write these books, is that so much of it, you know, comes from a kind of activist perspective. And I think that's an important literature. You know, I, I think that's an important literature, activist literature. And, and there are some great examples of it, but it's not quite enough to sustain me. I mean, I I want I, I don't just want stories that end with an exhortation to. Act, you know, to save the world. I want stories about some of these more complex, thorny questions that are raised by by the weirdness of our time, and and about characters who are trying to grapple with problems that there where there aren't clear answers about what you know what the right path forward is, uh, or where the answers are subjective, as you said, as we were discussing before. Um, And so, where there's more moral complexity, and and I think you know, Cleman's novel and other writers that I. I, th- I find are doing good work about this, are, are happy to dwell in the sort of weirdness of the moment and the moral complexity of the moment. And so they're not writing about necessarily, you know, how we should, you know, what laws we need to pass or what, what corporations need to be punished, um, though that's an important conversation to have. They're, they're, they're trying to write about the ways in which these public crises are touching our own inner lives. And I think that's, that, for the most part, is a pretty unmined but, but crucial um, subject.
1: Yeah. Well, I think back to just my own youth and early education in literature and poetry uh, in America, and I think back to, you know, the transcendentalists, I think back to Henry David Thoreau, Walt Whitman, and have, you know, on some level, you know, we're all trapped on the earth together, we're all in this together, and, you know, and this informed the 60s environmental movement as well, these kinds of ideas in the Native American kind of writings that are out there um, that, you know uh, you have to realize your personal connection to it and feel like you're actually in it and that you're not going anywhere (laughs) and start there. But I mean, it's so wishy washy and it's like, you doesn't have any actionable um, kind of consequence, but, but it's a fundamental kind of uh, comprehension of your relationship to everything else that from which, you know, you can't really go anywhere until you, until you get that, I think. Yeah. And I think
0: literature, like
1: na- especially narrative
0: narrative writing is the way in, you know, I think it's yeah. sure it's good to read, you know, good reporting and science reporting and political reporting on these, these subjects. But ultimately, I think the higher question tends to be for most of us, well, what does it, you know, what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with not just our, you know, where we're going to live uh, or whether my, property in New Orleans will have zero value in 10 years, but, but whether, but, you know, how does it inform our view of, of our lives, of the world and our place in it? And those are, mm-hmm. those are big questions. And this, this is a pretty new phenomenon that has completely altered society in a dramatic way. And I feel like it, there's some obligation for, for imaginative writers to take it on, to try to, to negotiate like how, how this, this, what this has to do with, with our lives okay. and, and what it means to be alive on this planet in this yeah. time um and it will remain abstract until some of that kind of work is done and I, and i feel like yeah you know, narrative narrative storytelling is 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 one of the best ways in through you know following characters especially who are navigating these issues in 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 profound you know intimate ways
1: yeah i want to uh start to wind down here for a second i want to read something uh from uh losing earth it's towards the end as you're sort of taking in an assessment of things. And it's kind of a beautiful summation of everything we've been talking about here. How does a sentient person alive now, the world already having warmed by more than one degree Celsius with another 0.5 degree warming inevitable, and emissions continuing to rise unabated, how does one live with the knowledge that the future will be far less hospitable than the present? Should we obsess over it? Ignore it. Find some tense middle ground. What do our failures say about our substance as a people, as a society, as a democracy? Will future generations be satisfied with the answers we offer for inaction? If we vote correctly, eat vegan, and commute by bicycle, are we excused? The occasional airplane ticket, the laptop, the elevators, year-round strawberries, trash collection, refrigerators, Wi-Fi, modern health care, and every other civilized activity that we take for granted. What is the appropriate calculus. How do we begin to make sense of our own complicity, however reluctant, in this nightmare? I know that I'm complicit. My hands drip crude. Hell is murky. And boy, if that doesn't, like, lay it all on the line, very eloquent and terrifying and kind of like doesn't let you walk away from what's in front of you. Nathaniel Rich thank you for coming on to Inside the Hive and thanks for writing these books and uh, if you're listening out there you should go buy them and and read them thank um, you so thanks yeah, for well, having me again.
0: yeah it's great to great to great to see you and, and speak with you
1: that's our show this week I'd like to thank Nathaniel Rich for coming on wasn't he great Let's have uh, a hand for Brett Fuchs, our executive producer. And how about the people at Cadence 13? They help make all this happen, too. And we'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this program. If you liked what you heard, subscribe. Come back next week and the week after. We're going to have lots of great interviews, great new conversations. And we want to hear from you. Come on Twitter and talk to us. Send an email. Google me. I'm in the book. We'll see you next week.